On Christmas Eve 1945, the Sauter family home burned to the ground. George and Jenny Sauter, along with four of their children, managed to get out. The five remaining children didn't make it out with them, and George and Jenny would spend the rest of their lives trying to figure out exactly what happened to them. Welcome to Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Thank you very much for joining me today, everyone. My name is PJ Vergnetti, and as usual, I will be your guide today as we traverse through this twisted little tale. But first... I have just a little request for you guys, all you wonderful people out there. We're on Apple Podcasts now, and a big part of Apple's algorithm is apparently based off of ratings. I guess they want to focus on promoting good podcasts, which is a noble cause. So what I ask of you, if your heart is moved to do so, is to mosey on over there and leave a review, preferably a good one, so that people actually hear this podcast. It takes like four seconds, I promise. You just press the five-star option, and then it's done. Every single review would be a huge boost to Simply Strange, and it would really mean a lot to me. So, thanks, guys. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get into today's story. Giorgio Sadu was born in Sardinia, Italy in 1895. At the ripe old age of 13, he and his older brother immigrated to the United States. They arrived at Ellis Island in 1908. They got through customs, and then Giorgio's brother promptly freaked out and got on a boat heading straight back to Italy, leaving his 13-year-old brother to fend for himself alone in a country where he did not know anyone. Young Giorgio Sadu, or George Sauter as he would eventually be known, was off to a little bit of a rocky start in America. Fortunately, though, he was a pretty resilient guy. He eventually found work bringing supplies to railroad workers in Pennsylvania. He continued to work with the railroads for a couple years before he eventually made his way down to Smithers, West Virginia, where he got a job as a truck driver. He did this for a few more years until he had saved up enough money to buy his own truck and started his own trucking company. At first, he mostly was hauling around fill dirt to local construction sites, and eventually he moved on to coal that was mined in the area. Now... The coal thing may be of significance. I'm not going to say it definitely is of significance later on, 
but it might be. Just remember he hauled coal. Jenny Cipriani was also born in Italy in 1903. Her family moved to the United States when she was very young, eventually settling in Smithers as well, where they opened a store. Eventually, George and Jenny met. They got married, moved to the nearby town of Fayetteville, and they began to start a family. And I mean a family, like a huge Italian family. Over the next 20 years, they cranked out 10 kids. So they weren't messing around. And apparently Fayetteville, West Virginia, has this weird, disproportionately large Italian immigrant community. The Sodders seemed to fit in really well there. George's trucking business was doing great, and they were staples in the community. A local official called them one of the most well-respected middle-class families around. George and Jenny were killing it. In 1943, Sylvia Sodder was born, and they decided that 10 kids was enough. They were going to shut down the production line. By this time, some of their older kids had grown up. Joe had left home to go serve in the military during World War II, and their oldest daughter, Marion, had a job at the local general store in downtown Fayetteville. Fast forward to Christmas Eve, 1945. The whole family was at home celebrating like they always did on Christmas Eve. At some point, George and two of their older sons, John and George Jr., went to bed after having spent most of the day working. Marion arrived home from work and brought some toys to surprise her three younger sisters, who were really excited and they wanted to stay up way past their bedtime to play with them. Jenny, the sole parent left awake at this point, granted them permission under the condition that the two other boys who were still awake put the cows in and fed the chickens before they went to bed. Then Jenny took Sylvia, their now two-year-old youngest daughter, upstairs with her, and they both went to bed. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang, waking Jenny up. She went downstairs to answer it, and it seemed to be a wrong number. There was a woman on the other end of the line with a voice that she didn't recognize asking for a name that she didn't recognize. It seemed like the woman was at some sort of party or gathering or something, as Jenny could hear laughter and clinking glasses in the background. She told the woman that she had called the wrong number, and then the woman let out sort of a strange laugh before Jenny eventually hung up. As she was heading towards the stairs to go back to bed, Jenny noticed that the children hadn't turned off the lights or closed the curtains which was unusual because that's something that they usually did before they went to bed. But it was late at night. Jenny didn't think too much of it. She turned off the lights. She closed the curtains. And she went back upstairs to go to bed. As she was doing this, she noticed that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch. About 30 minutes after Jenny had returned to bed, at around 1 a.m., she was woken up again, this time by what sounded like an object hitting the roof of the house. There was this loud bang when it initially made impact, and then sort of a rolling sound as it slid down the roof. She stayed awake for a few more minutes, but apparently she wasn't overly concerned about whatever it was. She didn't get up to investigate or anything, and then after a little while, she hadn't heard anything else, so she just went back to bed. Another 30 minutes or so later, 
She again was woken up, this time by the smell of smoke. She got up and she quickly realized that the extra room that George uses for his office, where the telephone line and fuse box happened to be, was on fire. She ran back to the bedroom, woke up George, and got out of the house with baby Sylvia. Marion, the daughter who had been sleeping on the couch, tried to call the fire department, but the phone wasn't working anymore. So she ran across the street to a neighbor's house to use their phone. George woke up John and George Jr., but they were unable to reach the remaining children because the staircase leading up to the attic, where their bedrooms were, was completely engulfed in flames. George rushed outside and climbed a wall below the attic window, which he managed to break open, slashing a huge cut on his arm in the process. He's bleeding everywhere. The window was too high for him to actually get into, so he ran around to the side of the house where he kept a ladder. He was hoping to use that to get up to the window, but the ladder was nowhere to be found. With the ladder option gone, he tried to back up his trucks that he used for his company up to the side of the house, just below the attic window, so that he could use them to climb up to the window. He had two trucks, and neither one of them would start, after having worked just fine the previous day. He also had a barrel of water sitting outside that he tried using to extinguish the flames, but it was frozen solid and probably wouldn't have been big enough anyway. At this point, there was not much else that he could really do. All of his options were exhausted. So the family was left with no choice but to sit there and watch their house burn while they waited for the fire department to get there. And they had to wait a long time. They didn't actually make it there until many hours later at 8 o'clock in the morning. It turns out that Marion was unable to reach them when she went to the neighbor's house. She called, but no one picked up, as did a motorist who had seen the fire from a nearby road. Apparently, the Fayetteville Fire Department takes it a little easy on Christmas Eve, and there was no one answering the phone. So someone actually had to go into town and track down the fire chief, a guy named F.J. Morris, in person. And then once they actually found our old pal F.J., they still couldn't do anything because he, the fire chief, couldn't drive the fire truck. Forgive me for my relative ignorance as to the infrastructure of a fire department, but it, it seems to me like the fire chief should be able to drive the fire truck. I don't think that that's an unreasonable assumption. But he couldn't, so they instead had to use something called a phone tree to alert the rest of the department. Basically, FJ called someone, and then that person called someone else, and it just branches out until everyone gets there. This is complicated, and it took a while. And by the time everyone was finally assembled and they got to the house, it was 8 a.m. the morning after the fire, and the house was completely gone. Six Sodders escaped, George and Jenny, baby Sylvia, Marion, George Jr., and John. The remaining five children had presumably perished in the fire. The fire department searched what was left of the home, which at this point, it was pretty much just ashes. 
and they were unable to find any remains of the deceased children. Fire Chief F.J. said that the fire was so hot that it completely incinerated their bodies, even the bones. This theory was aided by the fact that George, remember I said the coal was important, typically had a basement full of coal that he stored as needed for his trucking business. A few days later, the property was inspected and it was determined that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. On December 30th, death certificates were issued for the five solder children. reaction to the tragedy was pretty much exactly what you would expect it to be, intense grief. The state fire marshal's office instructed him to leave the destroyed home untouched so that a more thorough investigation could be conducted, but four days in, George was unable to cope with the sight of it and he bulldozed five feet of dirt over what was left, planning to plant a memorial garden in memory of his children. George and Jenny both were so overcome with grief that they didn't even attend their children's funeral on January 2nd, although all of their surviving children did go. As time passed, George was able to collect his thoughts a little bit and process everything with more lucidity, and he started to have some questions about the night of the fire, as well as some of the strange events leading up to it. George was a man of strong opinions, and one subject in particular that he had a lot to say about was the then dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini, of whom he was a very outspoken critic. It turns out that the mafia actually has a surprisingly strong presence in West Virginia, including some level of involvement in the coal industry. Some of the older kids reported seeing a strange car parked on the main street in town, watching the younger children come home from school. Perhaps George's strong opinions got him in trouble with the wrong people, and there was more to the fire than just faulty wiring. In fact, he even had an unsettling interaction with a life insurance salesman in the months before the fire, where... After George declined to purchase his services, the salesman proclaimed that, quote, your goddamned house will go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed because of the, quote, dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. Now, I don't want to get too carried away here, but when someone makes a threat like that and then that exact threat comes to fruition, it kind of makes you wonder. And then to make things even more interesting, this life insurance salesman also happened to be part of the jury that ruled the fire an accident. It's things like this that got George thinking, and this isn't the only piece of evidence casting doubt on the official explanation. Shortly before the fire, George had another strange encounter with an unsolicited visitor to the home when a man showed up one day looking for work at George's company. He never entered the house, but he did use the opportunity to sort of wander to the back of the house while they were speaking, 
and give the fuse boxes a bit of an examination, informing George that they would cause a fire someday. Obviously, this is a little weird. It was made even more weird by the fact that George had just gotten an electric stove installed. And as part of that process, he had gotten the wiring for the whole house completely redone. He then had the power company actually come out to the house and inspect everything and make sure that it looked good. And it did. So there really should not have been any issues with the wiring at all. And on top of that, the electricity was working at the beginning of the fire. The Christmas tree was still lit as they were escaping until it was eventually consumed by flames, at which point it stopped working. But when the fire started, there were no issues. With all that in mind, it seems pretty unlikely that whatever caused the fire had anything to do with the wiring. So we've got a bunch of weirdos showing up at the house, telling them it's going to catch on fire. We've got reason to believe that the fire was not actually caused by faulty wiring, like the initial report said. And one of the aforementioned weirdos was actually involved in this declaration that faulty wiring was to blame. I don't know about you, but to me, it kind of sounds like a cover-up for something. But wait, there's more. Back to the ladder that George kept on the side of the house. It was found 75 feet away at the bottom of an embankment. George swears that this ladder was always there. He did not move it. But someone must have. And then there's the phone. They actually hired a telephone repairman to come look at the phone line because, remember, the phone worked just fine before the fire started also. They received that weird call in the middle of the night, yet it had somehow stopped working by the time that they had tried to call the fire department when the fire started. Well, it turns out that the line wasn't burnt through in the fire like they initially thought it was. It was cut. This means that sometime between 12.30 a.m. when that strange call came in and about 1.30 a.m. when the fire was discovered, someone had cut the line, which was at the top of a 14-foot pole. Maybe that had something to do with the ladder being moved. I would say it's pretty likely. And after some investigation, they actually did manage to figure out who cut the line. Neighbors had seen a man stealing some tools from the property late that night, and the police were able to track him down and arrest him. He even admitted to cutting the phone line, but he claimed that he thought it was a power line, but he said he had nothing to do with the fire. And aside from that, there's literally no information about this guy anywhere. It appears that he was never really questioned about his involvement with the fire. There's no information as to why he's going around cutting utility wires to begin with. Apparently, since it's just a phone line, nobody cared and he got off scotch-free. There aren't even any records of this guy's name. He was charged for stealing some tools. He never went to trial and he was never questioned any further. At this point, there are a lot of signs indicating that there's more to this story than something as simple as faulty wiring. The Sodders started to believe that the fire was deliberate, that it was arson, and there's evidence to support that. A truck driver who passed by that night 
later reported that he actually saw people throwing what looked like fireballs at the house late Christmas Eve. A couple months later, while tending the memorial garden on the property, Jenny reportedly found a hand grenade. Aside from the official story, all signs really do seem to point to arson. But the question is why? George started to wonder if the fire was a diversion so that the younger children could be kidnapped or removed from the house in some form or fashion. If the ladder being moved from its usual location was a deliberate act to keep him from being able to reach the attic, and if his two trucks were disabled by someone intentionally. He later went on record saying, if they died in that house fire, I want to be convinced, and if they didn't, I want to know what happened to them. George and Jenny spent the rest of their lives investigating what happened that night, trying to figure out if their children were simply killed in the fire, or if something else had happened to them, if they were still alive and they had been somehow removed from the home. There were a number of reasons that the Sodders didn't believe that all traces of their children had been completely obliterated by the fire, and Jenny actually did a lot of research on her own to try to shed some light on the situation. She found a newspaper article about a family of seven who had been killed in a house fire around the same time as theirs. The house was of similar construction, but the skeletal remains of every single person who died in that fire was found. She would also collect and burn animal bones to see whether or not they were completely incinerated, and they never were. She even contacted the local crematorium to get their take, and they told her that bones can be found even after burning at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. Their house completely burned down in 45 minutes, but it was also aided by coal, which can burn well over 3,000 degrees. So it's hard to really say anything definitive about that. It definitely leaves room to doubt, though, whether or not the bodies could have been completely incinerated. George attempted to get the FBI involved to help with the investigation, and he was actually able to get in touch with some pretty high-up guys over there. Unfortunately, they informed him that it was out of their jurisdiction because it was a local affair. They could help, but they had to be invited by the local authorities. They needed to have them request assistance. But to this point, the local fire department had not been very helpful, and the local police had a little bit of an investigation going on, but they didn't seem to be taking it that seriously either. They never found anything and eventually just called the whole thing off. Long story short, though, neither one was willing to request FBI assistance, so that just kind of stopped there, which led George to instead hire a private investigator to aid with their investigation, a guy named C.C. Tinsley. Tinsley did turn up some interesting information. He's the one who actually found out that the salesman who had threatened to burn down the home a year ago was involved in the ruling that the fire was an accident. He also heard rumors that our old pal, the wonderful, super useful fire chief F.J. Morris, had found a heart in the ashes 
the day of the fire and had buried it in a metal box at the property without telling anyone. Sauter and Tinsley confronted Morris about this news, and he confirmed it was true. They got him to take them out to where he buried the heart. It was there. They took the heart to a local funeral director, and it turns out that it wasn't a human heart. It hadn't been burned in a fire. It was fresh beef liver that had obviously been planted. They confronted Morris about it, and he said that he had hoped that if they found it, they would finally be convinced that the children had actually died in the fire. This, to me, just seems downright moronic of Morris. Not only was there absolutely no way that this was going to work, these guys who have been giving everything they have to figure out what's going on with their kids are not going to just see this beef heart, assume it's one of their kids' hearts, and just go away. And on top of that, it also seems like it should implicate him. Why is he so concerned about the Sodders investigating this case? I get that maybe it makes him look bad because they don't believe him, and maybe he feels like the case should just be closed and they won't let it, but is that little inconvenience for him really worth the repercussions that could come from deliberately planting false evidence? I don't think so. If anything, this makes him look really suspect. He was already coming across as a bit of an idiot with the way that the fire was initially handled, but now he looks like an idiot who's trying to cover up a crime and may actually be involved in said crime. Lucky for him, though, he seemed to be pretty well connected, and of course, nothing really comes of it. Kind of mind-blowing to me that Morris and the arson-threatening salesman guy, and phone-line-cutting ladder-moving guy are all more or less ignored in the investigation. From this point on, you don't hear really anything about them. Maybe they were all questioned, and it was determined that there was nothing there, but I can't find any records of that, and they both seem extremely suspect to me. I think it seems likely that this was arson and one or more than one of them had something to do with it. But there's no evidence to back that up. One big issue with this story, something that makes a lot of the details a little hazy and ended up making the investigation much more difficult and much less thorough than it should have been, was George having bulldozed and buried the site of the home. The morning after the fire, the fire department searched through the ashes for remains, but after that, no further searching was able to be done because George had buried everything. However, nearly four years later, in August of 1949, George finally hired a crew to conduct a more thorough search of the site, and it actually turned up some interesting artifacts. They found an assortment of knickknacks that had belonged to the family, including a dictionary and some old coins, and they also found some bone fragments. First, the dictionary seems odd, because you would think that a fire hot enough to completely disintegrate a body would make short work of a book. But there it was. I suppose it's possible that it just happened to find itself in a spot that didn't get quite as hot. It seems like a big discrepancy to me, though. And then there's the bone fragments. They sent them out to a specialist at the Smithsonian who determined that they were lumbar vertebrae and that they were all from the same person. 
Interestingly enough, though, they most likely did not belong to any of the Sauter children. It was estimated that the vertebrae belonged to someone who was 16 to 17 years old, and the oldest of the missing children was 14-year-old Maurice. They also showed no signs of having been exposed to flame. The specialists concluded that this was not the remains of any of the missing children, and that these bone fragments must have already been in the dirt that George brought over when burying the site. Conveniently enough, these vertebrae fragments have since gotten missing, and never underwent any modern DNA testing to confirm this. A specialist did note that it was very strange that no other bones were found. By his estimation, such a short fire should have left behind full skeletons of all five children. So if the fire should have left skeletons, but didn't, then what happened to the five children left unaccounted for after the fire? George thought that they were somehow smuggled from the home, and that the fire was just a diversion. He printed up flyers with pictures of the children and put up a billboard along the highway, offering a $5,000 reward for any information that helped lead him to the truth. Eventually, this reward was doubled to $10,000. Numerous reports came in from people claiming to have seen the children since the fire. One woman even reported having seen them the night of the fire peering out of a car as it drove past her while she watched the fire from the side of the road. Another woman reported seeing them at a rest station somewhere between Fayetteville and the nearby town of Charleston, West Virginia. She said that she had served them pancakes the next morning before they got back on the road. Another report came in from Charleston where a woman who ran a hotel claimed that they stayed for a night, although she didn't remember the exact date. According to her statement, the children came in around midnight, accompanied by two men and two women. At one point, she tried to speak to the children, and the adults that were with them just completely freaked out. One of the men glared at her really angrily, and then the rest just began frantically consulting with each other in what she believed to be Italian, which ties in nicely with the idea that maybe there was mafia involvement. George took these tips very seriously, and he followed up on each of them, often traveling across the country to do so. A woman in St. Louis claimed that she saw one of the girls in a convent there, Someone in Texas reported hearing two people making incriminating statements about a Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia from a few years ago. George even caught wind of Jenny having some family in Florida who had children that looked similar to his missing children. So he drove all the way down there and made that relative prove to him that their kids were actually their kids. There was another time when he spotted a ballet dancer in a magazine that he thought looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty. So he drove all the way to this girl's school in New York City and demanded to see her. But he he ended up just coming off as some crazy guy, though, for obvious reasons, and they wouldn't let him see her, so he just had to go home. In 1967, he drove all the way to Houston because a woman had gotten in touch with them saying that one night at a bar, a man had too much to drink and told her that he was actually Lewis Sauter, one of the missing boys. 
and that she believed both of the missing sons were living in Texas somewhere. For some reason, they were never able to get back in touch with the woman, but they did find both of the men, who both denied being the missing sons. George and his son-in-law, Grover, had gone down to meet with them, and Grover said many years later that George doubted this denial for the rest of his life. Also in 1967, the family received a photograph in the mail of a young man. It was postmarked Central City, Kentucky, but there was no return address, and the man in the picture resembled Lewis. On the back of the photo, there was some writing. It said, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. I-L-I-L boys. A90132 or 35. The family hired a second investigator to go to Central City, Kentucky, to investigate this a little bit further, but... After this guy left, he was never seen again. I don't know that that means anything. They might have just hired a scummy investigator who took the money and ran. The picture, though, is really interesting. This guy in the picture does look a lot like the young pictures that they have of Lewis. Granted, both this picture of adult Lewis and the pictures that they have of young Lewis are both kind of blurry, they're black and white, they're pixelated. They were old pictures. It's not like they were using modern photography. But he does look similar. And then the writing on the back doesn't really mean much. Obviously, aside from implying that the man in the picture is Lewis, but the numbers, 90132 and 90135, were both zip codes in Italy at the time, which has led to some theories that somehow the kids may have ended up back in Italy, possibly to go live with relatives. I've read some theories that maybe George was running into some financial issues and either he or Jenny had arranged to have the children sent to family in Italy but couldn't bring themselves to tell their spouse. I don't know about that, though. I can't find any indication that they were in any sort of financial trouble. In fact, pretty much anything that I've found has indicated the exact opposite. And I don't see how burning down your house as a distraction would help with that situation. I also don't think that their lifelong search to find their missing children was an act. But it is a really interesting thought. Aside from that, there's not much else to be derived from the note. And it's, it's entirely possible that the whole thing was just a hoax anyway and that the picture is just some random guy who happened to look like Lewis. George Sauter continued searching for his missing children until his death in 1969. Jenny and the surviving children, as well as their children, continued the search as well, except for John, who believed that his siblings died in the fire and just wanted to move on from it. Jenny wore black in mourning for the rest of her life. She stayed in Fayetteville, and she maintained the sign and the memorial garden until, in 1989, she passed away as well. Shortly after that, 
the rest of the family finally did decide to take down the billboard. 44 years after the fire. George and Jenny's children continued investigating after their parents' death, publicizing the case and coming up with theories. They felt that the most likely explanation is that the mafia was involved. Perhaps they were trying to extort George for money and they were the ones who started the fire. Maybe the children were rescued from the home at some point in the night by someone who knew about the plans to burn the home down. From there, who knows, maybe they did end up in Italy. Maybe family took them in or something. Maybe those guys in Texas were actually Louis and Maurice. And maybe they were unable to reach out to their parents for their own safety. Perhaps if George and Jenny found out that the children were still alive, it would have stoked the flames and put everyone back in danger. It's hard to say. I don't know what happened to the Sodder children that night. I do believe that the fire was arson. The phone working late that night and somehow being cut by the time the fire started. Someone was there. The sound Jenny heard of something hitting and then rolling down the roof. The grenade later found at the site. Faulty wiring is an unlikely cause due to the fact that the wiring had just been checked and should not have been faulty. Plus, the lights were still on during the fire. Then there's the strange interactions with the salesman and the man who came by looking for a job, both alluding to a fire. There's reports by neighbors of seeing people throwing things at the house late at night. And then there's the guy who moved the ladder and cut the phone line who was never really questioned. The trucks had possibly been tampered with. There's a lot of signs pointing to arson. There's no way at this point to know for sure. But I would be a lot more surprised to find out that it was not arson than I would be to find out that it was. That being the case, the question is, what happened to the children? Were they just completely incinerated by the fire, as the fire department said, despite multiple experts saying that they shouldn't have been? Do we really trust anything that F.J. Morris says? I know I don't. Or were they smuggled out? Were they kidnapped by the mafia? Who was this man in the picture Ginny received in the mail if it wasn't Lewis? Was it just a hoax? Was there anything to the reported sightings in Charleston? What about those two guys in Texas? A lot of George and Ginny's search seemed like a wild goose chase. Like they were grasping at straws hoping that their children were still alive when... In reality, they just died in the fire, and they weren't able to accept that. But there's enough weird stuff going on to make the official theory seem, at least, somewhat dubious. Sylvia Sauter Paxton, two years old at the time of the fire, is now the last living of those who escaped from the house that night. She says that the night of the fire is the very first thing that she can remember. And she still believes that her siblings survived. And that is a wrap. Thanks so much for listening, guys. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Simply Strange. And if you did, go ahead and tap that subscribe button. That way you get notified whenever a new episode comes out, because that's really important. If you have any thoughts or questions or anything about this episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Simply Strange Podcast. Would love to hear from you. We'll be back in two weeks with another spooky, weird, and wild story. And until then, watch out for the Mafia. <laughs>